Well, Mark chapter 4. Now, as you remember, Jesus' fame has spread. And now people are coming from all over the nation of Israel, even all the way down from Jerusalem area and past. And it's not hundreds, but thousands of people are showing up. And so it's impossible for Jesus to go into a town. It's impossible for him to go into somebody's house. We saw where the guys lowered through the roof. They're ripping off the roof to get to Jesus because there's just thousands of people outside the house pressing in. And so Jesus now has to go to some rather extreme uh, and unique ways to teach. And it says in verse 1, and again, he began to teach by the sea. Now understand the word sea, when it was originally translated into the English, was a word that means simply a body of water. Now in our modern day English, the word sea is an ocean with salt in it. That's not the case. Matter of fact, we, we have them all over the world today. You know, we've got the Black Sea. Uh, and again, these are some of these uh, giant bodies of water are freshwater, but they're so huge, um, we call them seas, even though they're big lakes um, or extension of lakes or waterways. And so um, he was there on this lake, the Sea of Galilee, which is not a really big lake. It's about 13 miles at its greatest length and about eight miles across in its greatest width. But most of the Sea of Galilee, as you go across, it's about five miles across from one side to the other. But anyway, he's there, on, and a great multitude was gathered to him that he got into the boat and set in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. So he's literally having to make a area before uh, where he's at to get some distance so people can hear him. And uh, he's in the boat and has water between him and the people so he can get enough distance to successfully teach. And so he taught them many things by parables. And he said to them in his teachings, listen, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened, he sowed, that some seed fell by the wayside. The birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on the stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately sprang up because it had no depth of earth. And when the sun was up, it was scorched because it had no root, and it withered away. And some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Now, we realize at this point there's been three seeds put in, and they have not bore fruit. But then we come to verse 8. But other seed fell on good ground, a good soil, and it yielded a crop that sprang up and, incre and increased and produced some 30, some 60, and some 100. Now, understand, to this point in the story, it would have uh, seemed pretty typical. I mean, it's just sort of common knowledge of the day. 
It's sort of like saying it's like the guy who goes and pops his gas tank and pumps gas into the car, and then he shuts the lid, and he puts the handle back on the gas tank, and you're like, okay, that's the end of the message. Let's pray. And you're going, well, that's just common stuff. But now as he comes to the end, he says 30, 60, 100-fold. Now, I grew up in a farming community, and uh, I get this picture a lot. A lot of people haven't grown up um, in a place where you're planting and harvesting and your whole life revolves around what's going on with soil and land and seeds. And um, it's not as easy to understand, but if you have one out of 10 that produce, the seed produces when it germinates in the ground, you are happy. But Jesus here says, no, it's three out of 10, six out of 10, 10 out of 10, which is just unheard of. And so they would have been like, wow, uh, in the kingdom of God, land's going to be much more fruitful. Um, seeds are going to be much better. But it tells us that Jesus taught in parables because they didn't have the right heart in listening to him. He, he, what, they really were going to hear what they wanted to hear no matter what Jesus said. And they weren't allowing the word of God to really go in their hearts. And he didn't teach a parable for them to understand better. He taught them a parable because of the hardness of their hearts. And so... This is the end of the story. Jesus paddles away from the multitude. But however, the apostles say, what's going on with this thing? We thought we were starting to understand you and your teachings, and we are clueless on this one. And so skipping down to verse 14, the sower sows the word, and those are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately, takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Do you understand that Satan is terrified of the word of God going from your brain into your heart? He doesn't want that to happen. Not one time. He is doing everything he can to harden your heart to put a bad taste in your mouth, to minimize your faith. It's amazing. It doesn't seem like you can watch a TV show or a movie where they're not just mocking the Bible, mocking God's word. It's, it's sort of like they can't stop themselves. They got to throw this little dig about how foolish um, God's word is. I don't know if you've seen the TV show Young Sheldon, but it seems like every other show is this brilliant kid who's going to be a great scientist. Uh, it's a comedy, but it's, it's got to just try to make Christianity look completely foolish. And, and I can't stand it. I can't watch it. It's like their arguments aren't even good arguments. But yet in their minds... People, and I'd say Christians who haven't really been taught the word as you have here, it would, it would cause them to 
let go of the word. It would cause them to question the word. It would dilute the power of God's word in their life if they don't understand how foolish those arguments really are. But even, I don't like listening to it. I don't find it amusing at all because it's foolish. It's not even a good argument. But either way, Satan wants the word of God to not get into your heart and he is working overtime. So you say, man, it seems like when we go to church, we argue on the way home, or it seems like the kids act up horribly when we get home after church or, or whatever. It's like, yeah, guys, this is spiritual warfare. I will not ask, and I don't want you to raise your hands. How many of you had an argument on the way to church today? In the, in the past, when I've asked that, I mean, it's like half of the people. And I can, I can remember that. I'd wake up Sunday morning, and woohoo, you know, going to go to church and excited. And, and the kids are like possessed. And, and we're screaming and yelling at them and slapping them. And, and then we get to church, and it's like, oh, let's worship Jesus. And you're in your heart, like, wanting to kill somebody. Yeah, it's spiritual, guys. Satan, Satan's no dummy. He, he is here. He's, he's not out in the bars. He's not out in the streets. He's not out with the drug addicts uh, selling drugs today. Every demon is at church today on the way here and on the way home and right now in the midst of it. If we could open our eyes, we would see angels around about us. If we could see spiritually, we see that Jesus is here in a unique, special way where two or three gather together in his name. We would see a spirit of power because the preaching of God's word, just like what we're doing, you're like, well, I could read this at home. I know, but this is a gift of God to you to hear the word of God proclaimed. God's power is in a special way amongst us to get in, uh, mature our lives. And the other thing I think we would be surprised at is how many demons are here. How many demons are right around us right now to do whatever um, they can to, to get you to harden your heart, to get you to, to not uh, let the word of God go in your mind or especially in your heart. Well, likewise, there are the ones, in verse 16 now, who sown on the stony ground, who, when they hear the word of God, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, so endure only for a time. Afterwards, when tribulation or persecution arise for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. So there's that group of people that are willing to receive the word and all of its blessings, but they don't want to go deep into the word of God. To, to them, they just want a real simple, you know, for us here in America, a real American Christianity that has no real depth in it. You know, we go, we sing some songs, we sort of hear the pastor, wah, 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 sort of, you know, the wife's elbowing her husband, and he's oh, waking up, and, 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 you know, he's got a Christian fish on his card, uh, his car, and his, his business card, and, you know, he hangs out with Christians and, and so forth, but... But when he starts to advance spiritually in any way and the demonic oppression comes or the difficulties of this life come, he, he doesn't know enough of the Bible 
to, to make it through this testing. He doesn't know enough about God to, to really have root in himself to make it through this tribulation. And immediately he's like, well, you know, I prayed and God didn't take care of it. I gave him 15 minutes, you know, and, uh, you know, well, the Bible says this, this, and this, this, but this is what's going on. I don't believe the Bible's true anymore. And, and so as long as things are happy and, and they're attributing some of their success and some of their blessings to God, even though it may not even be, it's great. I'm a Christian. But if there's going to be any difficulties in my Christianity, if there's going to be any need for faith in my Christianity outside of going to church and hang, you know, making it a country club, then, uh, yeah, I don't want to go deeper. I don't want to read the Bible every day. I don't want to pray without ceasing. I don't want to share my faith. I don't really want to be discipled. I, I just want to go to church, get there late, walk out when the pastor's finishing praying and not talk to anybody. I just want to, I just want Christianity on my level and that's where it's going to stay. Well, it's only a matter of time until the sun starts to scorch and uh, it's going to dry up. Now, these are the ones, in verse 18, who sown on the thorns. They're the ones who hear the word, the cares of this world. Listen to that. The deceitfulness of riches. And notice, the desire for other things. It's just not bad things. It's just they get so caught up. I've seen this through the years of, of uh, parents. You know, that, you know, they're doing great, and then their kids start into sports. And they can't negotiate because sports becomes the number one priority. It's their number one energy, focus. All their finances are going in that. Every weekend's going to that. And, they, and they, they can't see how to walk as a Christian and have their kids in sports because today these sports teams are not like, hey, let's play baseball and have fun. It's like, if you're on my team, you plan on being a professional. And all you parents get that, right? Oh, yeah, my kid's going to be a multimillionaire. I'm all for that. I could use that. So, yes, what do you need, coach? And the kid wakes up on Sunday morning with a little sniffle. We're going to go to church. Uh, I can't. Don't mess with Johnny. He's got to play soccer tomorrow. But then the kid wakes up on the day to play soccer, and he's spitting up blood and hacking and 104 temperature. And it's like, son, be committed to the team. You got to get out there. They're going to, don't disappoint them. It doesn't matter how you feel. Get out there and you'll feel better once you get out there and start playing ball, you know? And, and in essence, they're subconsciously or consciously teaching. Yeah, if you feel up to it, most of the time we don't, but when we do, we'll go to church. And when, you, when it feels comfortable, read the Bible. If it works into your schedule, you know, live for God. But if it doesn't live, work into your schedule, then say la vie, you know? God knows it. He's, he's cool, dude. But when it comes to sports, this is serious. <laughs> when it comes to sports, you've got to have character. When it comes to sports, you've got to have commitment to the team. And it, it, it's interesting to see as those kids get older, maybe their parents didn't consciously verbalize that. But in essence, that is what they believed. And that's the way they lived. 
And I'm not saying there's not seasons of life where our kids are in sports and it doesn't take up a lot of our time and energy and, and money and so forth. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying that the devil's no dummy. <laughs> he is waiting for an opportune time. And for many of you, it's to not necessarily get you wrapped up in sin. It's just to give you a tasty desire for other things that have a newness, a romance, a honeymoon to it, an excitement to it. And, and, and that eventually just sort of chokes out any growth in Christ, any real deep walk in Christ. And then all of a sudden, the kids, unfortunately, probably won't become professional athletes. Um, <laughs> most of them won't even make the college team. Um, but uh, your, your hopes are dashed. But they're, they're on to the next thing. They're with their friends. And, and they're now out putting the desire of other things first before Christianity much to the grief of parents who now, once the kids are gone and, and, and they're having to renegotiate their life because they they're not consumed with taking their kids to all this stuff, they're like, wow, I, I need to, I'm not doing good spiritually. I need to start pressing on the Lord. And so they come back in their 40s and start pressing into the Lord. But um, unfortunately, many, many fruitful years and many, many years of important discipleship in the kid's life hasn't been done. It's an it's a, it's a interesting thing that the Bible says this little analogy is going to be times 10 in the last days. This is almost word for word a description Jesus gives in Matthew 24 of Christians in the last days. This is going to be uniquely what Satan is going to do for us. The deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this life and the, de and the desire for other things. He's, he's not trying to beat you. He's trying to join you. He's not trying to blow you out of the water. He's just trying to steer you slowly into a lukewarm life. But unfortunately, the fruit doesn't happen. Now, it's interesting as we look at the nation of Israel, most of the time, they were in this first three um, type of things. They were in Hebrews chapter 4. It tells us you could sort of wrap up the, the history of Israel. That they heard the word, but it never profited them. Because it wasn't mixed with faith in those who heard it. So they heard the word, they knew the word, but their hearts never mixed with faith to really bring forth fruit. And that was most of Israel's history. However, it was prophesied of a time, and I believe it's this very time when Jesus was speaking in Ezekiel 11, verse 19 and 20. Ezekiel 11, verse 19 and 20. Then I will give them one heart, I will put a new spirit within them and take, notice here, the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And they may walk in my statutes, keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. So 
Um, he's saying that there is going to be a day when God does a new thing in their hearts, a new spirit within them. I've got a horrible tickle in the back of my throat. You know where that's at, where you're about ready to cough? And uh, anyway, um, so he's saying that that stony heart that's being choking out the word, one day it's not going to be so, and they're going to have a new spirit in them to receive the word and follow it and obey it. Well, Jesus, in his explanation, after he talks about the three first seeds, he now gives the fourth one, and this is where we're going to focus here today. In verse 20, Mark chapter 4, verse 20. But these are the ones sown on the good ground. Those who, listen, hear the word, accept it, bear fruit with it, some 30, some 60, and some a hundredfold. In a parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke 8.15, I really like the way it says it there. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who are having heard the word with a noble and good heart. I love that. They, they genuinely said, I, I want to know what God is saying for my life and how to apply his word. Number two, to keep it. And number three, to bear fruit with patience. It's going to happen in its season. So first of all, they heard it with a good and noble heart. I, I like the way Paul describes how the word was so fruitful in the life of the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, listen to this, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. You Thessalonians, when you were listening, you had a good and noble heart. You had a, a spirit that was saying, as Paul speaking, God speaking to me right now. These doctrines that I'm hearing, this teaching on the second coming of Christ and, and how to conduct ourselves in the church. And, and I, I realized that it's more than just a man speaking. God's spirit is active in his word and that I need to receive what Paul's saying as if God himself were saying it. And Paul said, we didn't see that everywhere, but when we've seen it, and we definitely saw it with you guys, there is an effective working of God's spirit in your life because you believed it as it were the word of God. In 1 Corinthians 18, he says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. And notice this, the wisdom of God. The natural mind can't receive it. The natural mind can't get it. They, 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 it just seems foolishness. I, I hear these commentators sometimes saying stuff or these talk shows, and they, they'll say a precious verse of the Bible, 
And then they just mock it. I mean, it just seems so foolish to them. It's like, how could anybody at any time in human history take this seriously even for a second? That's the way it is in their minds. But yet we receive it who believe. And it's the wisdom of God. It's the power of God in our lives. I mean, I don't know where I would be today without the word of God being a lamp unto my feet and light unto my path. Amen? I mean, how many times we've hit horrible, dark times, deep valleys, and God's word healed us, comforted us, strengthened us. People sending you verses and, and you just reading the Bible and God just, ah, oh, his Holy Spirit just literally healing your life, healing your marriages, healing, giving you wisdom to raise your families. I, I don't know how anybody makes it two seconds without the word of God. I, 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 I can't imagine it. I'm, I'm, I, I just know how empty I was before I followed Christ. And then he says to do it, to keep it, to, to be a doer of the word. James 1.22 says, but he, the doers of the word, are not hearers only, deceiving yourself. If anyone hears the word of, and does not do it, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. He observes himself, goes away, immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he looks into the perfect law of liberty, continues in it. It is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. Listen to James 2 now, on down, in, in, in verse 22 to 26. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. The scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Listen to verse 26 here. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. For somebody to say, well, I believe in Jesus, but yet their life shows disobedience, their life shows they're not submitted to the ways of God. They're not seeking the Lord. They're not joining the church that Jesus died for. It says that God so loved the church in Ephesians 5 that he died for the church. It's his bride. That they're not fruitful. You don't see the fruitfulness of the love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, but yet they say, but I checked the box. Do you believe in Jesus? I checked the box. Yes, I believe in Jesus. The next one, do we believe in the Bible? Yes, I believe in the Bible. Do you believe in the church? Yes, I believe in the church. Do you believe in apple pie? Yes, I believe in apple pie. I'm a good American. No, it's this simple, guys. If you are keeping God's word, we will see it in a life that is following Christ. And, and here he's saying, you can take the first father of our faith, a man, Abraham. 
He believed God and it was counted him to righteousness, but then right after that, he was willing to sacrifice his son in obedience to God, believing God would raise him from the dead. And we see that he, God said, you wouldn't even withhold your only son. And it, God, it says, saw his faith. And then we see a woman, a harlot, a prostitute of a condemned nation, a Gentile, there that everybody in her entire community was going to die in judgment to God. But she hid the spies. And she, it says all of the whole country believed that God was the God of Israel and that their hearts were melting within them that they couldn't win against God. But she's the only one who acted in faith and hiding the spies. And so you see that faith and works work together. So the body, when the spirit leaves the body, the body is now just a shell. In the same way, when works are not in the faith, there is no real faith. It's simply a sentence being said. It's not a true thing that can be visibly seen. And then we see also that, that abiding in the word, and it bears fruit in its season. So it's just a constant abiding. In John 15, you know this passage well, verse 4 and 5, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. I, I like the way it says it best in Psalms 1. It says there in verse 2 and 3, but delight in the law of the Lord, and in his law meditate, abide, day and night, constant connectedness in the word of God. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, notice, brings forth fruit, not every single day, not every single week, but in its season. You gotta have the winter time where the roots going deep, deep, deep. And then you have the springtime where now the sap doesn't go to the roots, it goes to the branches and produces. Whose leaf shall not wither, you will not have a non-fruitful season. When that season comes, you'll be fruitful every time. And whatever he does shall prosper. You'll see it on the spiritual realm and you'll see it on the earth realm. The blessings of one who abides in God's word as it is truly the word of God to them. And then it bears much fruit. In Colossians 1.10, he says there that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. In Romans 6.22, it says, being fruit unto holiness. In Hebrews 13.15, it says, the fruit of our lips as we worship God. So, they're out on the boat. What does this mean, Jesus? Okay, guys. You believe it is the word of God. You really trust that this is the word of God. And you are accepting it in faith. And now you're believing it. And as you believe it, you'll bear fruit with it. And what does Jesus say in verse 35 of Mark 4 now? On the same day... When evening had come, he said to them, listen to these, 
Let us cross over to what? The other side. Did he say, let's go out into the middle and drown? <laughs> let's go out into the middle and let's get sunk? The word of God is, we're going to go out and we're going to make it to the other side. But notice what happened in verse 36. When they left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And the other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose and waves beat in the boat so that it was already filling. Galilee is unique in that, number one, it's the lowest fresh water on planet Earth. Right down the road there, the Dead Sea is the lowest body of water on Earth at about 1,600 feet below sea level. But the Sea of Galilee is 800 feet below sea level. And here's an interesting thing. On the south side... There's this mountain that you can tell has been rounded by hundreds of years of wind whipping around it. And so you have off the giant desert of Arabia, the country of Jordan, all the way out to Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran, you got these incredible strong winds coming just like we get with Santa Ana's, identical. But they come whipping down off the Dead Sea, down the Jordan River, and then they whip around Mount Arbel, and they can hit Galilee, which another unique thing is, it's not very deep. It's at the deepest, about 200 feet deep. So it's a small body of water, shallowly. And so that wind from Mount Arbel can come whipping around, hit that small uh, shallow water, and immediately you, you're looking at calm waters, and within minutes, you can have a turbulent uh, lake on your hands that's sinking you. And this is exactly what happened. It wasn't unfamiliar, but he was in the stern, notice, asleep on a pillow. Let, let's just take a, a moment here and realize Jesus was a hundred percent human in human flesh. He also was a hundred percent God in spirit. The eternal spirit lived in him. But he, he, so he was a hundred percent God, yes, but let's not forget the fact that he had no advantage humanly over us. And he has been ministering night and day, literally around the clock. And he is so exhausted that they brought a pillow. This is sort of one of those interesting facts that you wouldn't think somebody could make up if they were making up a story. It tells you the historicity of this story. Jesus is like, I've got to get some sleep while we row across. And he was so tired that even a turbulent storm couldn't wake him up. He was just completely out. But they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea. And he said, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm, probably calmer than they had ever experienced the Sea of Galilee. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have what? No faith. And they feared. Now it's a different word, fear. Uh, this is an awe. It's like 
there is this deep awe of who are we dealing with here? We're not dealing with a man. We're dealing with God. In Psalms 89, it tells us there that God is in the storm and God brings about a stillness of the storm. And uh, anyway, this is something that God prophesied that he would do and he did it here. And they said, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Again, they heard the words, but they didn't receive it like the Thessalonians as it were the word of God. They received it from Jesus humanly, but they didn't believe in his word by faith. And this is what we see, that there is a faith that looks past circumstance. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, we're not going to let the earthly situation dictate to us what God says in his word. I'll believe in God's word above what I'm experiencing with my senses on earth. And so even though it looks like we're going to sink, even though it looks like Jesus is asleep and could care less if we all drowned, it's not true. You guys ever feel like the Lord's asleep on you? Do you ever feel like the Lord doesn't care? I think on a human realm, we were in the storm and we're like, this needs to end, but it keeps going. Another day, another week, another month, another year. And, and you're in this storm and, and you're having to say, you know what? God's got it. God's got it. He's, he's, he's in control of it. But I cried out. I get no comfort. It seems like my, my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. That God's not hearing anything I'm saying. He's not hearing any of my cries and the groans of my heart. Well, this is what God does. He tests our faith. In 1 John 5, 4, it says, and this is what overcomes this world, our faith. And so immediately after the Lord gives them an example or gives them a parable, explains the parable to them, he now immediately tests whether or not the seed is on a good soil and bearing fruit. He has to test their faith. In 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise and the honor and the glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In James 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Yee-hee! Thank you, Lord! I'm drowning! <laughs> Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Again, you bear fruit in patience, right? Isn't that what he said? That after you hear it, you, you bear 20, or you bear 30, 60, 100-fold in patience in its season. And we need that patience to wait to see the fruitfulness of God in our life. We're planting the seed. We're watering it. We're weeding. We're waiting for the roots to go down. And it seems like we're not being fruitful, but the season's going to come. But we have to have patience, endure. 
And it says, let that patience now that God's giving you through the testing of your faith cause you to have a perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. The testing of our faith, producing an endurance, a patience, a long-suffering in our faith with God, waiting for his perfect timing to do whatever he's going to do for us, it says is a perfect thing. Final verse, Romans 5, verse 3 and 4. And not only that, we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. So the tribulations produces patience, endurance. It brings about a perseverance in our life. And so the apostles here, afterwards, they're like, who is this guy? That his word can stop a storm and create a calm like we've never seen before. And as we learn, we need to receive it as it truly is, the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come and we realize that we're fighting an uphill battle here, that Satan is working overtime in our lives, in our families' lives, in our friends' lives, in our own life to not let the word of God bear fruit. But we're here right now, Lord. We're here right now, and we ask that you would help us, Lord. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we want a tender heart, but help the hardness of our heart. Lord, we, we want to have that new spirit within us that receives the word, and, and it, we meditate in it, abide in it, keep it, accept it, walk in faith with it, and grow in the inner man spiritually with it. But Lord... Give us that new spirit. You prophesied of it, that we would have that new spirit. Lord, we, we need it right now. We know that if we are walking in faith, we won't fear. If we're walking in faith, even though we're in the midst of horrible, fiery trials, that we won't doubt your care for us. We won't doubt your power to end it but we also won't doubt your timing in ending it. We know by faith it says they were saved from the sword, and then in Hebrews 11 it also says three verses later, by faith they were killed with the sword. By faith you fed the multitudes with a little bit of bread and loaves, and by faith believers were persecuted and starved to death, wandering around caves and holes in the ground. We know you have a plan, Lord. You have a purpose. And we know that every hair on our head is numbered by you. In Luke 12, it says, Fear not, little lambs, for it's the Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. So, Lord, we ask you to take our fears away right now. Lord, help us to meditate in your word day and night with a good and noble heart, accepting it as it is in truth, the word of God. And we would just give it time and patience and endurance, not walking by sight, but walking by faith that your word is truer 
than anything we observe or see on this earth, that there's a plan and a purpose for everything. No coincidences in your kingdom. You've got a perfect plan in everything. As you're here right now, I just say, take your anger, your bitterness, your frustration. Take your fears right now, your trials that you've been going through and just lay them before the Lord and be in awe of him. God, forgive me for for not realizing that you have it in your hands, that you love me with an eternal love and that you are not giving me second best. You're not letting me be tormented and falling asleep on me. That you are every bit of the testing and the trial is of you. As it says there in Peter, if necessary, we go through various trials. We rejoice in the various trials, knowing that it's your divine plan to make us into the people that can be fruitful, living a life enduring to the end. Lord, we surrender to you right now.